Why is our church so small? Look around, we're a small church. And we've been here for 10 years. We're going on 10 years. This will be, we're, we're heading into the 10th year of Covenant Reformed Church's existence in Missoula, Montana. And numerically speaking, from a progress, from a perspective of progress, we don't have much to show for these last 10 years. We're a small church, but we're not unique. I was encouraged this fall when a former member returned, Aaron Galdine, and I asked him about his church, his newest Reformed church. His church planting pastor, the man that planted that church, is someone that the Reformed world looks up to. He writes lots of books, and he lectures in seminaries around the world, and he's, a, he's on the He's on the circuit for conferences, and he speaks at many conferences, and he's someone I admire. So I asked Aaron, oh, that must be a pretty big church, and Aaron responded, no, it's about the same size as Covenant, because that's the way it is. Reformed churches are usually small. Why? Why are Reformed churches so small? Because there is a lot of junk food Christianity. It tastes fun. It's exciting. But it lacks substance. But nevertheless, that's where the masses go. That's what the masses are following. That's all people know. That's what people expect from church. And it's Israel in the time of the judges. Doing what is right in our own eyes. According to our text this morning, Eli had ministered 40 years in Israel. That's 40 years of bad religion in Israel. And what happens to a church infected with poor religion when it's been infected with poor religion for 40 years? The people become spiritually malnourished, spiritually malnourished. Because if Christians don't have a steady diet of acceptable worship, we become spiritually weak, we become theologically anemic, and we pray, we fall prey to wolves. In 1965, Donald McGavern wrote the book, How Churches Grow. And in this book, he went beyond typical theological and biblical discussions about church planting and how to do church. And instead, he asked, what are the sociological factors that affect non-Christians hearing the gospel? Let me repeat that. How Churches Grow is a book that went beyond typical theological and biblical expectations on church growth, but asked instead, what are the sociological factors that affect how an unbeliever receives the gospel? And the goal of the book was to figure out how to share and how to do church and how to share the gospel and make it palatable to a non-Christian. And the result of this book was huge in America. It has started a movement 
that has affected almost all of Christianity, and that movement is called the seeker-sensitive church. And the church now markets to its niche, or niche. How do you say it? Is it niche, niche? I go back and forth. (laughs) That is, a church finds a certain seeker group. That is, the church has to now adopt a certain subculture. So churches go out and they adopt certain subcultures, and they adopt that subculture's tastes, that subculture's preferences, their likes, dislikes, they begin to look like that culture. They want that culture's music. They make that culture's music their music. They make themselves look like that particular subculture to which they are trying to win for the gospel. And they, and they take a whole wide range of activities from this subculture, and they produce them in hopes to build a mega church. 1965. That's over 40 years of church doing what is right in the world's eyes. And it's all anyone under 56 years of age knows about, usually, mostly. If you're under 50, that's all you know. And so what happens when a seeker discovers a church steeped in church history full of biblical exegesis, focused on good theology, bound to a biblical liturgy, saturated with divine hymnody, where a holy sovereign meets a humble people who bow in reverence and awe and fear because they seek to only please one, and that is Yahweh alone. What happens when they meet this church? They can't stomach it. And so Reformed churches are small. And Reformation takes time. You can't give a thick thick ribeye and an all-you-can-eat salad bar. And I'm not talking about, you know, salad bar at Pizza Hut. I'm talking about a good, you know, a good salad bar (laughs) with all the fixings. You can't give a thick rabbi and that wonderful salad bar and pair it with a a fine, well-aged red wine to a malnourished person. No, they can't stomach it. Their body literally can't handle it. You have to give them nutrients bit by bit, little bits at a time, a little nutrients until they get stronger, and eventually you can give them a solid meal. Reformed church has a rich, dark stout on tap every Lord's Day, and most Christians are drinking Kool-Aid. It's sugary, it's sweet, it's theology, it's fun, it's exciting worship. But what would you rather have? (laughs) Which feeds your soul? If you drink Kool-Aid for too long, you get sick. Too much, too long. And Israel was sick in 1 Samuel 4. They were lost. It was Tenebras, after darkness light. It was Tenebras. It was darkness in Israel. For her ministers had turned out the light of God's word for 40 years. But then Lux, but then light. The light was turned back on. We read chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
And here we see that Samuel is a man of God and he has the word and he is bringing the word to Israel. But also in Israel, you have Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, these false ministers. God has brought the word, but there are wolves. And so now in 1 Samuel 4, God has to get rid of the wolves. 1 Samuel 4, God is cleaning house. And so Samuel actually goes off stage. And we won't see Samuel, he won't come back on stage until chapter 7. Which is odd, given the fact that he's just now brought the word, and the, the word is going out to Israel, and we expect that word to continue. We expect more of chapter 3, verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Falling to the ground, that means his message was heard. He simply preached the word, and it was powerful. That's Reformation, people. Listen to Martin Luther. This is one of Luther's more famous quotes, so you've probably heard, but it's a good one. Luther said, speaking on the Reformation, he said, in short, I will preach it, teach it, Write it, but I will constrain no man by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, with my friend Philip in Amsdorf. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. The word cleaned house. It cleaned Germany of its papists and all their heresy in immorality. God cleans house. That's the Reformation. That's the title of my sermon. God cleans house. The church in 1 Samuel 4 was full of false teaching. God will not let that stand. So Samuel departs while God cleaned house, verse 1. And Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, the Philistines, if you know, you got to know your Bible, you got to know the Philistines. The Philistines were big trouble in little Israel. In verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. The Philistines destroyed God's people. Now, you might be tempted to think, aren't God's people supposed to win? <laughs> Isn't it supposed to be health and wealth? And my best life now? No. That's just more of that bad American religion. Verse 3. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, now notice this, you might highlight this. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Notice the text. The elders rightly understand that the Philistines didn't win. Look at the text. It doesn't say the Philistines won. The Philistines didn't defeat us. Who defeated Israel? Yahweh. 
the, the, Israelis, the Israelites, the elders, rightly understood that Yahweh defeated us. This isn't my best life now theology. That's cotton candy. This is ribeye with a side of bacon-wrapped prawns and a pinot grigio. Am I getting you hungry out there? Sorry. I should have ate a bigger breakfast this morning. This is good theology is what I'm saying. This is sovereignty of God theology. This is Heidelberg 9 theology. Heidelberg says that God upholds as with his hand all creatures in heaven and earth and so rules and guides them that neither leaf or blade, food or drink, health or sickness, prosperity or poverty. In fact, all things come to us not by chance but from God's fatherly hand. God's sovereignty. These elders knew it. They believed it. They confessed it. This is good theology. I could eat this steak. But then they failed. Right as they confessed good theology, they failed a proper faith because a proper faith not only trusts the sovereign God, but a proper faith turns to his word. But instead of turning to these word, these elders, kind of like the seeker movement, turned to something else. Verse 3. They say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of my enemies. So instead of turning to God's word, they turned to the Ark. They thought, hey, if we have God's furniture, we'll have God's power. If we have God's furniture, God's power will go with us and we will win. What do we call that? Starts with an I, ends with a tree. Idolatry. It wasn't, let us turn to the Lord and maybe the Lord will go with us. No, it's, let us take this religious artifact. If we have this religious artifact, that is, they didn't turn to the Lord, they they were using the Lord. That's idolatry, not turning the Lord in faith and repentance, but using the Lord. If we can use religion, and if we use it rightly, we'll win. It's magic. It isn't faith. It's superstition. I call it lucky charms theology. And lucky charms theology is the theology of Rome, where you carry, you know, saint whomever necklace, and that saint whoever, that necklace will save you. It's where you build big statue of Mary and put it on the mountains overlooking your city in order to protect it. It's Mormons in their magical underwear. And it's Christianity. It's any Christianity that uses religion. It's, you know, if I tithe more, God will increase my earnings. If I try harder, the Lord will bless me. If I do more, if I pray longer, not if I pray that I could be with the Lord, but if I pray longer, the Lord will have to answer me. It's wherever the church stops singing, thou art worthy, and starts singing, thou art useful. And it is the seeker-sensitive movement. The elders misused God. Why? Because that is all that they knew. And there's a hint of that in verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned in the cherubim, and the two sons, here they are, the narrator, 
reminds us of these two false ministers, Eli and Hophni, or excuse me, Hophni, it reminds us of all three of them, their father Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. These are the false ministers who have been ministering in Israel for 40 years, 40 years of bad theology. It was their business to mishandle God's word. It was their business to use religion. And they taught the people to do the same. They taught these elders to use religion the same. And they taught the people. And the people were inspired by their superstition. Look at verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. You see, sheep follow their shepherds. Bad theology up front produces bad theology in the rear. There was superstition with the ministers, and that superstition bled to the church. Sheep follow their shepherds, and wrong thinking leads to wrong living. And the Philistines were just as gullible. Verse 6, we expect them, they're pagans. And when the Philistines heard this noise of shouting, they said, what is this great shout? What does it mean? Oh, no, a religious artifact is coming to camp. They will destroy us now. And notice that the Philistines here, they were not afraid of the one God, creator of heaven and earth. No, but they were afraid of the gods. Woe to us, verse 8. Who can deliver us from these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians. These are the gods that plagued in the wilderness. Now, why are they, why are they afraid of gods? Yes, they're polytheistic, but they should have known that Israel was not. But no, they feared the gods because Israel was doing, in the time of the judges, what their culture was doing. And so in the time of the judges, we do see that Israel was polytheistic. The Israelites who were supposed to obey and serve the one true God were serving many gods. It was the time to do what is best in the eyes of the world. You see, the Israelites had been misusing God for a long time. And it was darkness. It was tenebrous. And God's cleaning house, verse 9. Take courage, and now the Philistines, these are the Philistines talking. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, and as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And they fought valiantly, and they defeated the Israel, it says. They defeated them. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Such casualties. Why is God defeating his own people? Why this death? If the elders would have turned to God's word, they would have known the answer. So let's turn there. Deuteronomy 28, if you have your Bibles. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. The final book of Torah, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the blessings and the curses of Israel. These are the covenant blessings and the covenant curses of Israel. If Israel obeyed God, covenant blessings. If they disobeyed God, covenant curses. We read in chapter 28, verse 25 of the covenant curses. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. 
This is the covenant curses happening in 1 Samuel 4. Deuteronomy 28, 25 was happening to God's people. God promises to bless his people if they obey all that he has commanded and to curse if they disobey. You see, sola scriptura itself, the doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, the Bible alone comes with blessings and curses. Follow the Bible. It leads you rightly the way that you should go. What? Blessings. But follow after the world instead of the Bible. What? Darkness. Following those who are blind themselves in the darkness. It only leads to curses. You see, Israel, according to Deuteronomy, needed to repent of their sins, trust in the Lord, and he would heal the land. But they didn't. They didn't turn to God. They used God. So they turned to trinkets to save them. And this is what happens, this is what happens to the church without a proper ministry of the word. She turns to gimmicks. God's people have violated his covenant, so they experienced wrath. This is the realization of God's promises in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2, 25, we read this last Lord's Day, or excuse me, two Lord's Days ago. We're just flying through this book. 1 Samuel 2, 25, we hear of the curse. God says, if someone sins, this is actually Eli. Eli says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was the will of the Lord to put Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas to death. And here it's answered in chapter 4. Those curses come upon this religious, this Ministerial family, if you will. And in the Old Testament, one thing you have to realize when you're studying the Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew narrative loves irony. Hebrew narrative is just full of irony, and this text is just dripping with it. Think of the elders. The elders take the ark in hopes to defeat the Philistines, but the Lord takes the ark in order for his false ministers to be put to death. They wanted victory, and God got victory. He got to kill his false ministers. He's cleaning house, and he wasn't finished. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Uh, this language, these expressions of torn clothes and dirt on his head, this is, these are, this is an Old Testament expression for mourning. When you mourn in the Old Testament, you would tear your clothes and sackcloth and so forth, and you put dirt on your heads. So this is laden with meaning. But not only is this person's appearance laden with meaning, but also Eli. His appearance is also laden with meaning. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat, just sitting there on the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of the Lord. And so the narrator here with Eli really tries to paint a picture of someone who's very helpless. Here's Eli, the minister of the Lord, but he's, he's, he's really helpless. Just sitting there worrying, no way to help. And when the man came to the city, he told the news to all the city and they cried out. The man doesn't even bother to go and tell, you know, Eli. I guarantee if this was Samuel or better, King David was ruling in the day, that man would have came right to the battlefield to whom? 
He would have, he would have showed his respects. This man doesn't care about it. He, he, Eli's not even respectable. And then Eli's, you know, when Eli heard the sound, he hears it. And he's crying out, what's up with the uproar? He's still sitting down. He can't even get up. What's going on, people? And the man finally came and hurried. And Eli, and then it says, Eli was 98 years old. He's an old man. His eye, he couldn't see. His eyes were set. He's blind. He's old. He's blind. He's helpless. And the man said to Eli, I am, I am he who has come from the battle. And I fled from the battle today. He said, how'd it go, my son? Who brought the news answered, he said, Israel fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Lord promised to kill them before his very eyes, did he not? And the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, helpless. His appearance is not only shoddy and a picture of helplessness, but his ministry, it's just a picture of who he was as a minister, helpless. I mean, people weren't, people weren't big in this day. People were not overweight back in this day. How did he get so overweight? Worship, abusing worship. He got fat over the sacrifices. In his own sin now, his own sin of sacrilege has weighed him down. He can't even stand up. And his own sin has caused him to fall over. And his sin kills him. You want to talk about irony? His own sin killed him. He fell down and broke his neck. And God judged Eli's house. And the moment Eli died, the idolatry in Israel was dead. And we're left with Samuel, the man of God. The Lord cleaned house. And soon he's got to go clean even more than his house. He's about to clean the Philistines. He's about to take out the Philistines. Right? They, ta- they capture the ark. We'll learn about this next week. They go and take the, the ark and they lay it down to the next, next to their god, Dagon. The Philistines' god, Dagon. And what happens to Dagon? Dagon falls over and breaks his neck. But first, Eli, because judgment begins at home first. God is cleaning house. And there's a warning here for Christians. Judgment begins at home. There's a warning here for us as Christians to be sola scriptura Christians. You want to be a Bible alone Christian. And you can only be a Bible-alone Christian in a Bible-alone church. These are hard words. In verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant about to give birth. We know the story. She hears the news about the birth or the death of her, of her husband. She learns the death of her father-in-law, and then she hears about the capturing of the ark. And she has these birth pains, and she has a baby, and the time of her death, she's dying as she's having this baby. In verse 20, it says, about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you've born a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention. 
And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod. Did the glory of God depart from Israel when the ark was captured? Yes. The ark was a sacrament of God's presence. But the glory of God departed, not because the ark had been captured. The ark was captured because the glory of God departed, because Israel did not turn to God's word. And just because a church has the word, doesn't mean the church has the word. The church in Israel had elders. They used religion. They didn't, use, they didn't turn to God. They had ministers who had Torah. They had the word of God, but they didn't rightly handle the word of God. Ichabod could easily be written over the sanctuary of any church. And Ichabod can happen to us. Ichabod can happen to our own homes. It can happen to our lives. If we don't seek God rightly, if we don't seek his word and seek to live, as Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. By honoring this word, by hearing it and obeying it and doing it, knowing it, raising our children in the word. Ichabod is religion without history. It's the church without the proper understanding of God's word. It's worship without reverence and awe. It's elders who mishandle the ark. It's ministers who don't handle rightly God's word. You see, the ark actually was the answer. Don't forget that. They had the ark, and the ark was the answer. But not to treat it as a trinket or a gimmick to use it, but to turn to the ark. What was the ark? Well, the ark was a golden plated box. And inside the ark was the Ten Commandments. And the ark was the place of Israel's worship. The ark was in the most holy place. And the ark was used on the Day of Atonement. When the head priest, the high priest, would go behind the veil and with the spotless lamb, the sacrifice spotless lamb, the blood, he would sprinkle the blood on the lid that held the two cherubim that were facing one another. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And there Israel's sins were forgiven. And there God promised to speak to his people. There God promised to rule his people. There God promised to forgive their sins. So the ark pointed to Yahweh's presence. It pointed to Yahweh's presence who ruled, spoke, and forgave his people. And, <clears throat> and who does that sound like? And Jesus Christ is the ark of God. He is the substance and the truth of the ark. In Christ, God is with us, ruling, speaking, and forgiving us all our sins. And Jesus cleans house. 
And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whose blood washes away all our sins. But I know in this life, even recognizing and hearing the gospel, we can often feel Ichabod. You ever feel Ichabod in this sad world? Ever feel as if God is far from you? It's often because we don't turn to Christ, or we do turn to Christ, but we turn to use Christ. And we use religion. If only I'll, if only I'll try harder next time. And we turn to our own resolve, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to tithe more. I'm going I'm to give it all I got. I'm going to read more. And, and then God will bless me. He'll have to. No, don't turn to use Christ. Turn to know Christ and experience his grace and say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And know that his grace is greater than all your sins. A grace greater than all your sins. And know that he is closer to you than a friend, closer to you than a brother, who wants to be with you as if you are the only one in the world. In his love, in his love, we're more than conquerors, for there's no enemy that can defeat us, not even death. The day you draw your final breath, the ark of Christ will lead you in the presence of glory forever and ever. So let Christ rule you by his word. He is calling you to a life of sola scriptura, So don't do what's right in your own eyes and don't do what's right in the world's eyes. Do what is right according to God's word. Look to Christ. Find your confidence, your love for him. Find your only comfort in life, your only comfort body and soul in life and in death. In your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, whose blood has washed away all of our sins, who's delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. Christ is Ichabod reversed. And his house is filled with glory. And that is what I call a well-aged ribeye. Served with a nice, well-aged red wine. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.